time. Pirates of the Columbian, Millionaurus, 51-53, Hamburg's Keegan Revolution, 77-80, and Radford, Motson and the Mud, Hereford, 72. Welcome to by far the greatest team, a football podcast where fans draw a line under the debate over who is the greatest football team of all time by debating who is the greatest football team of all time. Uh, my name's Graham Dunn. Apologies for the Pirates of the Colombian pun at the top of the pod. Uh, it is awful. It doesn't really work. Uh, but once I thought of it, uh, a bit like a moth drawn to the light or uh, Richard Dunn drawn to slicing one into the back of his own net. Nature just took its course. Um, I am joined as ever by a man who I think has probably been studying uh, Bruno Fernandez' expected moans stats from the weekend. Uh, it's Jamie Rooney. I've, I've actually not followed any news since Sunday. And for those who are listening, we record these on Wednesday. Um, so I've got no idea what you mean when you talk about Bruno Fernandez. But I didn't mind your Pirates of the Colombian joke until you just mentioned the Bruno Fernandes thing, and suddenly I went off it quite quickly. Because <laughs> <laughs> these aren't necessarily going out uh, sequentially or in the same week that the uh, we record them, uh, uh, record them. I'm, I'm trying to avoid too much topical stuff. But I do think a cheap jibe about Bruno Fernandes moaning, that's going to be applicable whenever this goes out, surely. That's yes, a great point, I mean, Jay. it doesn't matter what week of the year we're in as prov- the voice you can hear, the voice you can hear joining us there is uh, our guest this week. Welcome back, uh, Scott Samantha. Scott, how are you doing? Hey, Graham. I'm really well, thank you. And uh, forgive me for that uh, that uh, name drop there. But um, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right to to put out Bruno Fernandez and talk about that game. We could talk about it all podcast, be a Liverpool fan, but there's obviously more priorities this week scott last time you were on the pod you described yourself as uh david fairclough in tribute to your super sub appearance and you know i have to congratulate you for 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 really putting a um uh, a reference there really squarely into our our prime audience a reference which no one under the age of 47 would have had any understanding (laughs) as to Agreed. Agreed. Hey, okay. I was just going to say, I'll be honest with you. I was um, a little bit disappointed with the agenda today because you know we're going to be covering uh, Hamburg seventy-seven to um, eighty, which is three seasons. And you, you called me on as a guest a few weeks ago to talk about Liverpool, and you would only let me talk about one season. I mean, come on! It's, it's the only, it's the only good season they've ever had, isn't it? <laughs> so I was uh, I was trying to think if there was a you know to try and bring us up to date with the kids and uh, and so forth. I thought who would be the better Liverpool super sub reference and of the modern era? It has it's got to be Origi, isn't it? Yes, I think you're right. I think Origi's seen as a not a god, but certainly 
he's held up by Liverpool fans very highly because of you know what he's done against Everton, what he did in the um, the semi final and the semi and the final of the Champions League, and he just does that. He comes off the subs bench, seems to score. Of course, the greatest substitute appearance in my book is uh, is James Haters. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, James Haters' work from Bournemouth. <laughs> so back in uh, 2004, this was back before Bournemouth became fashionable and famous under Eddie Howe's revolution. Uh, Sean O'Driscoll was in charge there, and he he brought James Hater on in the 84th minute. And James Hater scored a hat-trick against Wrexham after wow. coming on in the 84th minute. That really is. Fair play to James. That's not, awesome. Just, just going back to Dido Carigi, as a Liverpool fan, Scott, do, do, do they have any songs for Dido Carigi? Dido Carigi. Um, well, no, I think there's an absolute... Nailed on certainty, it's Bebopilula. Didokarivi, he's my baby. Didokarivi, I don't mean maybe. Didokarivi, he's my baby. baby Surely they, they must sing that. I mean, it's an own goal if they don't sing that. That in itself is a great moment in podcast history, listening to a Man United fan singing about a Liverpool player. <laughs> well, I'm impartial on this pod. I, I turn up, I'm totally impartial. I leave my colours to one side and, uh, you know, I talk openly about the greatest football teams of all time. And I have to absolutely accept that Liverpool are in that bracket with a number of teams. I think one of the things about this podcast is once you start straying down rabbit holes, you you keep going down rabbit holes. And we semi-encourage this. So I then started drifting into great hat-tricks and I came across... <laughs> so do you remember... And I can't remember, I can't believe I've forgotten this because this happened in 1986, squarely in my you know footballing era. Alvin Martin's hat trick against um, Newcastle United. Um, so the, I mean, this is incredible. So I mean, it's already incredible because Alvin Martin scores a hat trick. But Jamie, can you remember the fact about it? I think I can, but I'm going to let you tell the story rather than rudely interrupt. But I think I can. It's quite incredible. So. West Ham are playing against an injury hit Newcastle United and they're already down to one goalkeeper. So uh, a, a chap called Martin Thomas, who's come, who has to come back early from injury, plays in goal and very, very quickly damages his, uh, his injured shoulder. Manfully stays on play for the rest of the first half, uh, during which Newcastle go 4-0 down. He has to come off at half-time and at half-time, one of their players says, oh, I'll go in. And we say, no, 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 uh, you're, we need you out on pitch. So they are bringing a, a young uh, youth player who's only played four or five games. He only actually plays four or five games for Newcastle full stop, mostly in defence. Um, but one of the games he has to play for them is, is a chap called uh, Chris Headsworth. He ends up playing in goal, or Chris Headsworth ends up playing goal for the second half. Uh, an outfield player playing goal, glorious days. Um, unbelievably, Hedworth then fractures his collarbone in a challenge about five minutes into the second half. He stays in goal for another 20 minutes until eventually uh, has to give up. Can't play in goal. They're six down by this stage. Um, at which point, the guy they wanted to bring on at half time, or, or the guy who, who volunteered to go come on at half time, but wasn't allowed to go in goal because he was too good out on pitch for Newcastle. Peter Beardsley then goes in goal, um, 
Hensworth, Hensworth doesn't get to go off. He's he's got a fractured collarbone. He 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 just plays as an outfield player. This is genuine because there's only one sub allowed at the time. So this is genuine Sunday league football of the most injured players going in goal and then. So, so Peter Beardsley ends up in goal, and um, West Ham get a penalty in the uh, right, right at the end, and uh, Ray Stewart lets uh, Alvin Martin take it first career, probably, I assume only career hat trick, and and so there you have it. The, he is the only player to have scored against three hat trick against three different goalkeepers in the same game. So that's where I've been going, Jamie. Last week, we were talking about, amongst others, the amazing FC start, the team which is kind of the inspiration to escape to victory. And um, I think you've been musing on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, our favourite favorite film of all time, Escape to Victory. I, I think we may have been a bit unfair about Michael Caine and his uh, character, John Colby, and his physical shape in Escape to Victory. You know, a, a guy who... Um, in the prime of his football life, so he says, um, in a prison of a war camp, looking a bit poorly. So I was curious. And so Kane would have been playing his football for West Ham and England, not Kane, Colby, mm-hmm. not Kane, Colby, would have been playing Colby. his football for West Ham and England through the 1930s. So I was curious to understand what was the typical British diet in the 1930s. And it turns out this was the golden age for sugar. So sugar was like at its peak in the 1930s. So at the, the creation of things that we love today, the confectionery we eat today, like Kit Kats and Aeros and Mars bars and Crunchies, were all invented in the 1930s because sugar was in abundance and everyone was mad for it. It was added generously to cakes and jams and cups of tea, like 10, 20 sugars in your cup of tea. And it was also added into milk, making evaporated milk. So mm-hmm. I, I had a, an idea that maybe jo- John Colby of West Ham in England through the 1930s lived on a diet of effectively Kellogg's cornflakes, which was also invented <laughs> at that time, with loads of sugar on top, tins of fruit in syrupy sugar, Mars bars as snacks, and evaporated milk sandwiches at the end of the mm. day. So it's not any great surprise that maybe Michael Caine, John Colby, was the size he was in Escape to Victory because he was on such a rich, sugary diet through the 1930s. So it all makes complete sense now. The casting was absolutely spot on. We stand semi-corrected. I'm not sure. I still think, I mean, in the in the army? I mean, he's been in the army for a bit beforehand. Was it, I'm not sure it was... I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I'll let it go. The jury, The jury is out. Sorry, Graham. Mm. One last thing. You mentioned where was we talked about the goalkeeper and Kevin O'Callaghan, as you mentioned, mm. wasn't even a goalkeeper, but was the goalkeeper that broke his arm and sliced the bone, went in and replaced him. The goalkeeping coach, I think Mario mentioned on the pod last mm. week, there was goalkeeping coaches. Oh, yes. That was Paul Cooper, who you referenced. Oh. <laughs> so Paul Cooper is a behind the man, behind the uh, behind the camera kind of man. Yeah, Ipswich this Town's is... goalkeeper of the, you know, the late 1970s was the... The goalkeeping coach from the Skate Division. Which is ab- which is perfect casting because Paul Cooper was something of a penalty save specialist and um obviously in the crucial moment starts slides alone um saves the penalty. So I like that. That's very good. Very good. Shall we get on with uh, uh this week's teams? So first up we've got Los Millionaires. Is that the correct pronunciation? I've been struggling in pronunciation on this. Where on earth to do they herald from and what why are we talking about them millionaires of colombia and we're talking about the 1951 53 version 
and why are we talking about them? Um, back in the late 40s, uh, Colombia was going through a bit of a political unrest. Um, there was an assassination on uh, a, a guy called Gaitan, who was believed to be the man of the working classes in the eyes of the next president to out the right-leaning conservatives that were in place at that particular time. And there's this backdrop of violence going on in Colombia. There's a lack of interest in football. The league is the league is run by Adi Football. That's the Colombian Association. It's not run to a pretty high standard. It's not really well organized. And there's a bit of frustration from businessmen who have seen opportunities to capitalize on the growing game that is football. So they decide uh, to create their own Super League. They invite clubs from around Colombia. Uh, they set up a, a, a league called um, the Demea, and they create mm-hmm. their own Super League. And they decide that they're going to use this Super League, plung loads of money into it, and that will be the, the, the prime number one league of Colombia. Now, of course, this upset Adi Football because they were the Football Association of Colombia, and <laughs> they didn't agree that there should be this Super League coming in and basically bagging all the riches. So they protested to FIFA. FIFA sided with them and decided to expel the teams participating in this what would be now this Colombian Pirate League from being playing under the FIFA umbrella, which sounds like a punishment, but it created opportunities because it meant if they weren't affiliated to FIFA, they could effectively approach any player in the world <laughs> and invite them to come and play for their club for any sum of money because. There was no transfer fee because they didn't need to negotiate mm. with football teams because they're not part of FIFA. They're not governed by FIFA's rules. And there was no maximum salary cap, which would have been in place in lots of countries at that particular point. Most notably in Argentina, where a player strike was going on. Millionaires mm. were savvy to this. And they went down to Argentina and they attracted the best players. And they brought a player called Adolfo Pedernera who was considered an absolute Argentine legend. He'd been part of the, the River Plate teams of the 30s and the 40s that we'll get to a, another stage on our on our quest to reveal the greatest football teams of all time. And with Pedernera there, he was able to convince a young, um, sprightly, promising striker called Alfredo Di Stefano yeah. to not go to Italy, as it seemed he was doing at that time, and come and play with the, uh, the Colombian... The Maya League. So Millionaires have set themselves up with these Argentinian heavyweights, but they weren't the only ones in the league doing that. I mean, let's just get back to Alfredo Di Stefano. I mean, so he's a massively famous and influential footballer. How did he end up there? He'd, he'd been at River Plate, um, and he and also uh, Nestor Rossi went to Millionaires as well. He he knew. Pedernera and Pedernera had taken him under his ring effectively at River Plate and uh, almost, you know, honed him to become the great player that he is. He was loaned out to Huracan at that mm-hmm. particular moment when the player strike was going on. And there was talk that um, he could go to Italy, an opportunity to go and play in the north of Italy. I think it may have been Torino. And this is around about the time as the, you know, the great disaster that happened with the, the Torino team of 1949 that we'll talk about again another point. Um, because of his influence, Pedernera's influence over Di Stefano, who was able to convince him to 
Uh, well, I say convince him. I mean, he was being paid about 10 times his current salary <laughs> and he would have got a signing on, he would have got a signing on fee, the equivalent of around about 250,000 pounds in today's money. So, <laughs> so this was, this, Not this a was tough the, the equivalent of Graham Gooch and, um, Graham Gooch and John Embry heading off to, uh, South Africa for the cricket rebel tours. Only arguably, I guess there's less, well, more, it's more Kerry Packer, isn't it? It's Kerry Packer. Kerry Packer's Circus, I think they called it or something, didn't they? But um, I mean, who did they play? What? Who did they play during this period? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they play well-established Colombian teams that we know of today. Um, mm. One of them being Deepo Tivo Calais. Um, mm-hmm. And what's what's great about that particular moment is that the clubs, uh, Independiente Santa Fe, for example, they were they were getting players from all over the world. It wasn't just South America where they were creaming the, the best players and they were attracting the best players because they could just pay salaries that mm. until this point, no player they'd ever seen and signing on fees that was absolutely life-changing for these players. So Inde- Independiente Santa Fe, they tapped up uh, Neil Franklin and George Mountford from Stoke City in, in England at the time. They also got Charlie Mitten, um, who was playing under Sir Matt Busby, uh, Matt Busby, Justin, actually, at that particular point, at Manchester mm-hmm. United. There were players from Germany, Austria, Hungary, Spain, Italy, Lithuania, Costa Rica, Panama. It was the global league. In, in, terms, in fact, in one point, around about the early 1950s, over 70% of the players in the Colombian Demaya League, this pirate league, were foreign. That is crazy, isn't it? It's completely, completely uh, the other way around to what you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, it's common now to have probably 70% or above imports playing in uh, many leagues around the world. But at the time, in the early 1950s, it was unmanageable. It would, it was never going to happen for, a, you know, a good 40, 50, 60 years before, you know, players started applying their trade in other parts of the world. But you're right, yeah, going to South America was a big deal. I mean, it, it couldn't last forever. Um, the issues with FIFA, um, the complaints, not just from the Addy Football Colombian FA or the former Colombian FA, as it turned out to be for a short period. Uh, they were coming from Argentina as well because Argentina had lost these players and there was no transfer fee. They, they'd lost them for nothing, effectively. So there was, the, there was this, this pack of Lima, as it's called, which effectively meant, it was done in 1952, but effectively meant by 1954, all of the players that had travelled into Colombia from foreign countries had to return back to their foreign countries. And they, they did say, um, you know, in some parts of the world, they would have been fined heavily, they would have been banned, suspended for a number of, a period of time. But in that, in that period of 1949 and 1954, when the league existed, Millioneros were the dominant team. They won three championships in a row. Um, they competed in what was a small club, world club, the first of its type. I say the first of its type. I don't think it is because there's another team we could talk about going back to the 1910s where I think potentially there was a club world cup then, but we'll talk about that another time. But at the time, this small club world cup, um, teams were attracted from Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid joined in, um, Austria, oh, wow. Rapid Vienna, um, joined, yeah. So, um, and Millionaires fared well in that. They won the 1953 version. Um, so they were they were a dominant force. And Di Stefano was the absolute golden player in that league. I think he scored somewhere around about 101 goals in 90 <laughs> games for million for Millionaires in that period. It was a very apt name for them, actually, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, it's nominative determinism once again. 
yeah, you get if you sign for them, you are you are literally playing for the the team of millionaires or the the equivalent of what happened to them. So once the players were forced back, did they have to eat humble pie and just return to the Colombian league? <laughs> Some of them, uh, they had to return to their, um, yeah, I think the Colombian League fell in under the Addy Football again, um, mm-hmm. and it, it remains so, um, and it has gone through some changes in time. But yeah, effectively, the, the, the giddy period of, you know, big attendances and star players disappeared, and the Colombia never really recovered to such grace ever again. And in terms of the players, it was mixed fortune, really. So if we take an example like, Charlie Mitten, who was kind of ditch United, he, he, Man United, he had he had to go back to Manchester United. That was part of the Pact of Lima. So he's gone back to Manchester United. He's been fined heavily. So all of the riches he's gained over this two, three year period playing in Colombia, uh, he's had to give some of it back to the FA who fined him. Um, they've also banned him. And then uh, Matt Busby was having none of it and got rid of him to Fulham. But De Stefano, completely contrasting story. You know, he went to Madrid. Um, and we will talk about Alfredo Di Stefano many times on this podcast again because of what he would achieve at Madrid. But on the millionaires thing as well, it's worth noting they they did play Madrid in a friendly. They went to Madrid in 1952 and they beat Madrid 4-2. So this is the Madrid team that's slowly gaining that kind of brilliance that's going to dominate European football. Millionaires went over there and beat them. They also, although I haven't been able to substantiate this, they I haven't seen the results, but I read that they beat. Hungary in that period as well. So this is the great <laughs> golden generation of Hungary. And they also beat Uruguay in a friendly who were the current world champions. So three championships, a small club World Cup, one of the first of its time, victories over major forces in world football at that particular moment. I think it, it stacks them pretty high in terms of a, uh, even though they were they were backed by Lots and lots and lots of money. Nothing unusual about that in this day and age. Mm. Um, they were big hitters of their time. Uh, they were the um, they were the Harlem Globetrotters of their time, weren't they? Uh, well, yeah, actually, yeah, touring. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, Scott, because you've been tempted out to Colombia around about then. Potentially, I mean, obviously, the fee would have been quite attractive, and um, <laughs> no doubt, I'd have loved to have um, showed my skills to uh, De Stefano. Of course, it's a great story. I love the fact that he. Um, he obviously um, went out there for not just one season, but for that whole time, which is incredible, really, uh, considering, you know, the player he was. What I think is so strange is seeing a story like that having, you know, genuine legends attached to it. It's 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 very, very intriguing. There are definitely some greats playing there, but are they a team of greats? How great are they? We have, um, of course, five categories of greatness. These come to us. Immediately, we ne- I never have any rem- uh, difficulty remembering what they are. We <laughs> top of the tree, one of the greatest. We go down from one of the greatest to true greats, touch of greatness, edge of greatness. For those maybe uh, not so great, the uh, are known as the blink of greats, the ones who are greats at least in some eyes. And all, and then we have our bonus joker category. Not great, but without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. So. Jamie, where where do you want to put Millionaires? I had been considering this because I, I don't. I think I think I've settled on touch of greatness because it's very brief. Three championships is pretty major. They've got not just in Di Stefano, but in Adolfo Pedernera, two of the greatest Argentinian world footballers of of all time. 
they're holding their own against the the cream of the crop in terms of world football. So I think for me, I like to kick off this pigeonholing of Millionaires 51-53 into touch of greatness. What about you, Scott? Where are you looking? I, t- I think probably a touch of greatness is a fair um, summary of where this club sits, really. It's a, it's a great story. And um, interestingly, Jamie, they've just won the Copa Colombia last season as well. So maybe we can revi- revisit the 2022 team. But um, yeah, no, I think a touch of greatness is a good good summary for this team. So I suppose this is this is the, the caveat factor, isn't it? And, and you see it a lot with certainly the... Um, English teams at the moment, and we're seeing it with Newcastle. We're seeing it with Man City before, and Chelsea, and and it's all and right down even to Jack Walker's Blackburn. You know, so to what extent is greatness a little bit tarnished by the having bought their way to it? For me, this this puts them into edgy of greatness territory. I just think it's a bit. I don't know. I don't. Can we? Can we really appreciate that? That's a touch of greatness when they've when they've just nicked Argentina's best players. Opportunistic, but is it? Is it great? I agree. I, I agree with where you've gone with this because this is where I was wrestling because they've left no legacy behind. It's like they haven't even left a, a league legacy behind, <laughs> like not, let alone a club club legacy. That you know the clubs are gone effectively, and they've become bigger their own world but not to the scale that they, they once were in the league, the Colombian Football League, albeit I'm sure it's fascinating and brilliant. It doesn't get the the profile in this part of the world where we are in the, you know, Northern Europe that you know, a league like the Brazilian League gets, which we do actually get to see some games occasionally. So, yeah, I, I, this is where I was wrestling between edge of greatness and touch of greatness. Scott, can I, can I tempt you to go down at the edge of greatness route? Oh, that won't take much, Graham, I'll be honest with you. it it sort of sits between the two and um, I'm happy to sit on the fence here boys and let you two argue this one out to be honest with you Uh, if you need me to judge it one way or the other um, should we flip a coin you got heads you got anyone got a coin (laughs) on you got heads or tails I think um, I think they really sit in edge of greatness and and probably their successor team uh, Billionaros are the um, (laughs) greatness (laughs) So, um, <laughs> was that a slip of the tongue or is there a club called Billionaires? <laughs> I, I, I want there to be. I really want there to Wouldn't be. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I thought Jamie did say Billionaires earlier, to be honest with you. you know, I, I didn't sort of say anything at the time. And I'm thinking, is there a Billionaires now? Blimey, O'Reilly. They're, they're, they're really that, that, getting their money out there. These inflation, these that inflation. might be something to do with the cocaine trade. <laughs> yeah, all these inflationary days we're in. So I say a millionaire Sefsi, edge of greatness. So next up, we are looking at uh, a, a, an extraordinary tale of success, and a tale which sort of comes from comes from nowhere. Really, it's um, it's Ham, uh, Hamburg, the great Hamburg team, and actually uh, we're going to focus on the kind of nineteen seventy seven to eighty era. Uh, Jamie Hamburg, a really successful period, and it's kind of led by the arrival of a couple of individuals in particular, I guess. Yeah, most notably the coach, Branko Zebek, who some people, most people, I don't wish to criticise people's knowledge, but they may not have heard of him. Um, I must admit, 
I hadn't really come across Zabbik before I started doing much research on this. And then I found reading more about him, I just became fascinated by the individual. And it, it was startling why this guy hasn't been showcased as one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he's a Yugoslav national Croatian, effectively, but Yugoslav at the time. Yes, if we go back about 10, 12, 13 years, he was he was coach of his local side, Dynamo Zagreb, and he had taken them all the way to the Intercities Fairs Cup, as it was known at the time. And they met Don Reeves Leeds United in the final. And they they won that over two legs, uh, two goals to mm-hmm. nil. And it put Zabek on the map. And there was this little club in Bavaria at the time that hadn't had much success called Bayern Munich. And they decided to take a gamble and put Zabek as their manager and in his first season, he, he actually won Bayern Munich's, what would be effect, effectively their first ever Bundesliga oh, wow. title. And he also won the cup. So, and he put Bayern Munich on this incredible road where mm. they would become, in the space of eight years, one of the greatest, biggest football teams in, in world football, winning three back-to-back European Cups. But he had his problems. He had his problems, bless him. He suffered alcoholism. And it was a battle that he couldn't really get the better of but albeit it didn't blur his brilliance as a coach um he was often referred to as a tactical genius incredibly intelligent very strict with his regimes he would work players incredibly hard some players would faint he'd get players you know running ridiculous numbers of laps in 35 degrees temperatures or out in six feet of snow and he just seemed this extraordinary individual where he was a father figure to the players and also able to treat individuals with complete respect, but also make sure they knew that who was boss. And he had the tactical nous as well. So we get to 1978 and Hamburg are in a bit of a middling, going nowhere. Um, they've got Kevin Keegan with them and they appoint Zabek as the coach. And the fortunes of Hamburg change from that particular moment. So it's worth, isn't it? It's worth looking at, at Hamburg before that period, isn't it? Because they... They were pretty middling in the Bundesliga. They hadn't achieved a huge amount. Um, 76, I think 1976, they finish second. So, you know, they're, they're clearly a club on the up. Because when I came to think about this again, I mean, I knew that Kevin Keegan left Liverpool to join Hamburg. But it's such a, it's such a random transfer stroke club to end up at. I think even... Even within that time, obviously, you didn't have a lot of English or British players uh, moving abroad full stop at that stage. But, I mean, Kevin Keegan could pretty much have the pick of any club that he wa- that he wanted. Can I come in but, on that, Graham? Mm, yeah, definitely, say, definitely. Do you mind? Just very quickly, because Jamie has made some important points about um, the coach, Zibek, who, who absolutely, you know, turn them around but if you I think Kevin Keegan from again a little bit of the research that I've done on this was obviously a, a pivotal character and you know he just won you know the European Cup and the, the league with Liverpool who did the double that season or the season before obviously and um, the funny thing is I don't know Jamie if you read about this very interesting character Dr Peter Krong I was reading that what this guy did Peter Kroll he was a quite a visionary and this is just this is the season before uh, Zebek took over 
And he, what he did was a little bit different because he did it from a sort of a marketing perspective. And he, he was a little bit of a visionary in the perspective that he decided what he was going to do with Hamburg is increase their revenue and make them more attractive as a club by by doing by increasing their revenue. So he introduced a number of things into the um, organization. They they started wearing pink, for example, um, so they could attract more uh, female fans. They were um, having stadium days, and he was really t- he was a bit of an entrepreneur. So he was really tapping into you know what we see every day now in our leagues. You know how clubs like Uniteds and Cities and Liverpools of the world, you know how they grow their revenue. But he was tapping into that sort of you know back in this era, and that's something that initially attracted Kevin Ke- Kevin Keegan to Hamburg. I think we should really sort of doff our caps to to this um, crawl because he started that turnaround of Hamburg and and I think he really probably was the one that attracted Kevin Keegan because Kevin Keegan joined before Zebek did he joined the season before and it's, this is really interesting interesting period in the club's history I mean I suppose there's there is a, a history or a, or a heritage of Liverpudians going to Hamburg um the Beatles of course um went over there <laughs> not that not that Kevin Keegan is a Liverpudian that's the only bit that kind of ruins that isn't it um but you're absolutely right you're absolutely right that that having Keegan joining it was a, it was a massive step a huge thing but of course it didn't have initially it looked like it quite bad fight they had finished second the year previous and that first season Keegan played they finished 10th Keegan had a lot of problems settling didn't he he did, yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, Jamie, yeah. I might be stealing your thunder here, but apparently the players really no, disliked him. And they, because they'd won the European Cup Winners' Cup the season before. And um, so the the German players were all going, why do we need this stupid little Englishman? They were calling him Mickey Mouse because of his hairstyle and um, really resented him. And bless him, old Keegan was, you know, living in a hotel with his wife uh, somewhere in, in the city. At one stage, I think, again, Jamie, I don't know if you read this doing your research, but some of the players wouldn't even pass to him during matches in that first um, first season. Um, so he was resented. He was just, nobody knew why he was there. Um, but Kroll, you know, he felt that he could make Hamburg into Bayern Munich and, and Kevin Keegan was going to be the catalyst for that. It was a tough time for Keegan. He he was at the point where he was ready to quit Germany. Um, you're right, Scott. I mean, it, there was a there was a clicky group in in Hamburg. They were, they weren't passing him the ball in in training and, and in particular matches. Um, he was living in this hotel room with these dogs on the 19th floor. I think that's what I read. Yeah. Uh, he also yeah. he also was struggling with the German language. He he couldn't find. British cereals in the supermarket. I mean, it was just like living in a foreign country. So he, <laughs> he, he was struggling. He was ready to quit. And then coincidentally enough, before this, there's three, three or four things that happened that turn this around. And this story turns out really good for Keegan in the next two seasons. But he was at the point of quitting. There were three teams that were in serious interest in buying Kevin Keegan in, mm. after his first season at Hamburg. And they were, I mean, these sound pretty sensible, right? Juventus of Italy, mm-hmm. Real Madrid of Spain, mm-hmm. and Washington Diplomats of the North American <laughs> Soccer League. It's crazy, isn't it? He nearly went there as well, didn't he? He just got talked out of it, but they offered him like half a million pounds or something, I believe. I read that one of the key key element bits was when he got a um, uh, he got sent off in a game, get quite um, in a friendly, quite reproducing <laughs> his his moments with Billy Bremner. <laughs> punching guy and, get, and got an eight-week ban during which that gave him time to learn the language after making that breakthrough with 
the rest of the players and the fans. People started. People actually even started sending him his favourite uh, breakfast cereal, which I assume is sugar puffs, based on the advert at the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we can get away from the fact that he was a trendsetter and he had this incredible perm. Um, and if mm-hmm. you just look back to the English league, you, you've got you know you've got Terry McDermott, Brian Robson, Martin O'Neill. Graham Soonis, they're, they're all done in this Keegan S. Perm. He's, he's absolutely set things, you know, in motion with this, this new 1980s hairstyle. And you're right. He had, he had turned the wave and the fans were liking him. They were calling him Mighty Mouse and his, his teammates were liking him. And I think this was vindicated at the point when his, his teammate, Peter Hyden, got his hair permed as well. <laughs> you know, Keegan has been accepted. <laughs> Graham, I was going to say he was groundbreaking in in other areas as well because he became he became a probably one of the first people or players to get huge sponsorship um, through BP, and he also made a record as well, which is just so funny because again you can just see Kevin Keane, you know, he didn't make a huge amount out of that because of the way he signed his contract, but um, head over heels that was that head over heels in love apparently mm. <laughs> on hamburger that why why they. Being put forward as greats um, on this particular pod. The second Keegan season is the is the key season. So you're right um, about Peter Crowell. He, he was a visionary. He was very commercially savvy uh, and was tapping into the financial opportunities that were available at that particular moment. Gunter Netzer came in and replaced him as general manager, I think, yeah, and um, right, yeah. that was a big step. He brought in he brought in Zebek, the, the coach. He was a genius. Right. He had his demons and was struggling with with alcohol. And there's a few extraordinary stories that we can talk about later in his Hamburg career to share shortly after I've gone through the reasons why I think it changed. Keegan was persuaded to stay. So that was one key thing. And they also, Graham, I don't know if you remember this from when we talked about Algeria 82 uh, a few weeks back mm. on the pod and the, the the infamous West Germany Austria game. They also signed. <laughs> hey! and, and, and what they did, they, they created the, the little and large strike duo effectively that Keegan had with John Tosek at, at, at Liverpool because I mean just to give you the context Keegan is about five foot six you know he's a he's a tiny man and if you take his perm off he's probably five foot four uh, <laughs> whereby Horst Hubich was his big overpowering six foot two striker I mean it was your classic little man big man strike partner combo and of course, we had uh, my favourite Felix McGat playing in there, able to put soft cheese on any uh, any injuries that might be happening around that time as well. Uh, but he's a very good player, Felix McGat. Um, I'm never tired of that story. It goes remarkably well for Keegan, and Keegan is um, European Player of the Year two years running. Ballon d'Or. That's correct. Yeah, he won the Ballon d'Or twice. And then it sort of uh, we, culminates. And just, mm, go on, Jamie. I was going to say, on, on the Ballon d'Or, when Keegan won that, he was the first, clearly the first English player to win it multiple times. And I think still only the English player to win it multiple times. Mm. But that, at that point, only Di Stefano, Cruyff had won, and possibly Beckenbauer at that point, had won the Ballon d'Or on two occasions. So Ke- Keegan is, is really in with illustrious company right there. I mean, that is a core group of the world's greats and Keegan is amongst that it's an extraordinary run of appearances they obviously win the Bundesliga in 79 and certainly the Keegan part of the story then culminates in in 1980 with the European Cup final where again there's a there's a sort of there's a, a fantastic narrative that 
Keegan, who must have been, he's almost the only English player playing abroad and should end up in the final of Hamburg playing Knott's Forest. The, I mean, just to probably, it feels like it must have been their finest moment. Um, in the semi-final, Hamburg beat Real Madrid 5-1. A scoreline mm. against Real Madrid Indeed. that is familiar Having to some of us. Having lost the first leg, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be coming in a bit uh, prematurely, to be honest with you. I think we're talking about um, a wonderful story again, and, and that's what I love about these podcasts is the stories that you bring uh, to the table. I'm just questioning already in my mind whether this was a great team. And I, when I sort of did some research, I was going, oh, yeah, look, you know, they've obviously, you know, turned their fortunes around. They've won the league. They got to the final of the Champions League, well, European Cup, sorry. Um, and they had that great semi-final win against Real Madrid, as you just pointed out, Graham. But um, they didn't really go on to win a huge amount after that. It was just this two or three year period where they, they sort of touched on greatness. And I'm just wondering whether they... Um, Keegan, obviously, as an individual, won the Ballon d'Or twice. But I don't know. It's, it's, I'm just questioning. Forgive me, as I say, I might be a little they, bit premature a, in this conversation. But um, go on, Jamie. Well, Zabit the coach, uh, you know, he he was gone by 1980. And the reasons he's gone is because his alcoholism was, was really getting the best of him. He was regularly turning up at press conferences, drunk and making some crazy, mad statements that didn't have any real coherence to what he was saying. Uh, and this went on for some time and he was turning up with a hangover. And I think there's also a story where he was so he was so drunk and he gave his players a, a talking to saying, okay, you know, let's just get over the, the loss. Forget about the loss. Let's get on with next week. They were losing 2-0 at half time when he, when he was telling his players this. So uh, he, he clearly, he clearly had issues. Um, but the, I think the thing that really ended it for him, unfortunately, um, at Hamburg was um, a few days before they were due to play in the European Cup final against Knott's Forest. They had an away game, I think, in Dortmund. And the coach is ready to go. The players are on. The officials are on. And Zebek doesn't turn up. Um, it turns out, he, you know, he's, he's been on the source. He's been on the source all night. He's had too much. He's woke up late with this hangover. So he, he makes the sensible decision to drive himself to Dortmund. <laughs> Of which en route he he gets stopped by the police. Uh, they breathalyze him. He's he's over the limit. And what what I like about this is I, I, when I say like about this, this is the wrong word. What I find bizarrely weird about this is he's been breathalyzed. He's he's way over the limit. And the punishment is to just compound his car and leave him on the roadside. That's it. <laughs> to, to which to which Zavik then phones a taxi to take him the rest of the way to the game at Dortmund. And he arrives on time. How much he participates in terms of giving the team talk, I don't know. But he's famously <laughs> photographed sleeping on the bench during the game. <laughs> and, that, I think, and, and that was pretty much the straw that was put in his management position in doubt. There was no doubt in his genius. There was no doubt in the way he worked with the players and how how he got the players into incredible shape and shaped a team that was, you know, definitely geared for greatness. They won a Bundesliga. They got to a European Cup final. But the man who brought him in, Gunter Netzer, who replaced Peter Karl, he was the guy that got rid of him. And he got rid of him because Zebek again, had turned up for a press conference, drunk, unfortunately, um, and pushed Gunter Netzer, Netzer over, the general manager. So it, it, <laughs> it must have been deemed as gross, gross dismissal. I mean, it's, it's a tragic tale of what feels to me 
a fantastic genius of a maverick. I mean, he was also a decent player. And, you know, he played at two World Cups, captain Yugoslavia in one of them, an incredible genius and definitely responsible for the Bayern Munich. He got them on the road there. And Scott, you're right. He, he left Hamburg and he didn't leave a big legacy. But shortly after this one, it's another team we'll talk about because it's slightly different playing stars and it's a different manager in terms of Ernst Happel who comes in and they, they do win a, another couple of Bundesligas and they, they go on and win the European Cup. But I think we'll talk about that team in its own right in, an, in another pod because it's slightly different circumstances to this hand yeah. we're talking about. They, they come up against a great um, Nottingham Forest team as well. And I'm sure you're going to touch on that team, the Nottingham Forest team of sort of 1978, 79, 80. So you, well. again, you've got to be a, a bit, bit unfortunate in the in the fact yeah. that they uh, were come up against them. Definitely so. Uh, stay tuned for that one, or retune to an earlier podcast, um, which we'll be able to point you to in the uh, in the notes oh, when they come you out. You covered them, have you? Forgive me. Sorry. <laughs> Obviously, I was a substitute for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Yeah. I was just whether you were on that one, but no, you weren't. Before we come to the judging, I just, I just want to bookend the Kevin Keegan story. It's interesting you say, you know, at the point he was, he was leaving, uh, considered leaving the first season in Real Madrid, Juventus. I mean, admittedly, the Washington team is a bit random, but just as going to Hamburg appeared a bit random. Of course, yeah. where he went was almost right. as random, if not more. Uh, Lauren McMenemies, yes, really Southampton. Was. I mean, it's again, this is a Ballon d'Or winning striker. England captain, I would think at this point, joining Southampton. Now, the bit I like about this is he joined at Southampton, long-standing England international, Dave Watson, good old-fashioned England centre-half. He too, in 1979, went to Germany to try his luck and played went to play for Werder Bremen. His stay lasted two matches before he pushed someone over. He also got an eight-week ban. So I don't know what it was about the German disciplinary system. He was also banned for eight weeks and then had ah, they were the only two games he was uh, to play and engineered a move back to Southampton where he would have played against uh, where he joined where Kevin Keegan joined in the following season but I like the idea that in this period where you had remarkably few traveling English playing exports that you could potentially have had Dave Watson v Kevin Keegan England's prime centre-back and England's prime striker and captain playing against each other in the Bundesliga so Scott you were you were touching upon this this feels to me in terms of the ranking you are not a hundred percent convinced. Where are you thinking of landing? Well, I think they probably go. They probably sit above Los Millonarios for me. <laughs> Millonarios. Um, I'm suffering from your, um, <laughs> your, your challenge, Graham. Millionaires. Um, Millionaires. And, and would that be a touch of greatness? I think. I I love the fact that you know. Obviously, my early memories of Liverpool was when Dalglish joined, and I, it wasn't until maybe I was a little bit older, that I realised that, that, that Keegan had, had left Liverpool to go to Hamburg. I remember seeing him on the telly and talking about joining Hamburg, but it didn't really... I was, you know, I was so young. I was five or six then, and it doesn't... These things don't compute. So um, this story feels to me more of a Kevin Keegan story. The fact that he won the Ballon d'Or, transferred Hamburg into a, a team that were just sort of, you know, wanting to grow and wanting to progress. More so than a great Hamburg team story. I, I think it's brilliant that they won the, the Bundesliga. They're definitely on the edge of greatness. I think I'd stick them 
a little bit above Los Millionaires. You've got this superstar striker who's won the Ballon d'Or twice. You've got this mm. incredible genius, flawed coach in Zabek. You've got your your man Magar playing in midfield, and you've got your big man Hushbesk um, partnering. Mm-hmm. So I think there is some nice ingredients <laughs> in this team. They've won their first ever Bundesliga. I mean, that's something that shouldn't be taken away from. I think they go on and win maybe one or two more. So there's a legacy attached to this team. Um, there's an immediate legacy that bounces this team into into be- bigger greatness. But I I, I also God, we just agree all the time. It's so sad. Um, <laughs> I do think edge of greatness is is the right place for this team. I don't think I can argue beyond that. I, I mean, I love so many things about this story. Um, I love the unlikeliness of it. I love the ground broken by Hamburg. Uh, head over heels is itself uh, another <laughs> another why don't people make songs in the same way why don't people just make songs anyway in the same way but i but i think probably head over heels is uh a kind of a penalty point probably uh that's not going to help it over through so i think uh keegan's hamburg edge of greatness and so we come on to uh a, a fantastic story and when we talk about a lot of these sides, we're talking about, you know, great legacies. So, you know, sustained brilliance over a period of time. Uh, sometimes it's more of a flash in the pan. Sometimes it's maybe just a, a genius season. So when we're talking about David Pleats Tottenham uh, last summer, it's pretty much one great year. But some, sometimes it can even be what, just one great match. You know, maybe even you're looking at Coventry City, FA Cup final, 87. That's just one great match of greatness. Hereford, 1972, on the one hand, you were talking about one great goal. Everyone, I was going to say everyone knows where they were when it happened. No one does because we, we weren't. Um, <laughs> I wasn't even born. Conscious, you weren't even born at the time. But, but everyone, there is nobody who doesn't know the Ronnie Radford goal, immortal Ronnie Radford goal from 1972. Hereford, Notts Forest. An unbelievable shock of a goal. You, Newcastle United. You're from, you're, you, Newcastle. Who did I say? Newcastle. Yeah. Not so yeah, They're still smarting oh. from the fact that Scott ha- Scott hasn't listened to a previous podcast when we talk about <laughs> Not so 77, 79. <laughs> Do you know the uh, the weird thing about it is when you, you know, everyone remembers that goal. And of course, they're playing in red. You know, Newcastle playing in red. It's not obvious that it's Newcastle in in any way whatsoever. We're obviously going to focus on that game in a little bit, but I do want to just just put a a bit of context about Hereford at the time and that cup run, because actually the story itself is really, really uh, interesting. And Hereford themselves have been knocking about in the non-leagues, not really achieving a huge amount, other than the fact that... um, do you do you know who their manager was prior to this game? Their previous manager, he's a guy we've mentioned. <laughs> we've mentioned on the last two pods. It is none other than Welsh legend John Charles. So he was player Charles, manager. Yeah. He was player manager. Not not John Colby, right? 
John Charles. Not John Colby. Not John Colby. <laughs> he has also been mentioned in the last two pods. So John Charles was <laughs> player manager, Hereford, between 66, right up until 71. Now, they're playing in the... I think the Southern League at this point, uh, you know, essentially a version of the of the conference, and as a result, they when they embark on their their cup run, they have to start with the first qualifying, you know, the fourth round or the first qualifying round before the league clubs get in. So they they win that, they play that one, and then they get into the, the first round proper, as it was always uh, traditionally called. And so in the first round proper, they they beat. Kings Lynn, but they need a, a replay to beat uh, Kings Lynn. That takes them through to the second round, where they play Northampton, who they beat after two replays. So they need two replays to beat Kings Lynn, <laughs> uh, Northampton. So by the time they get to their third round cup game against Newcastle, three rounds, six games already played. The Redford goal, everything about that game is the shock, but actually... That game is a replay. They they play Newcastle initially, first time round, at St. James's Park and get a 2-2 draw. So they've actually already taken them back, game number eight of their cup, cup run, to Edgar Park, where uh, where they finally play this game, where uh, a packed Edgar Park, 14,300 fans are there to watch. 80 minutes in, Malcolm McDonald scores for Newcastle. They take the lead. And then Ronnie Radford happens. I mean, we've seen it at every single third round of the FA Cup on television, <laughs> particularly the BBC when they're covering. They they will show it without fail. I mean, they're you know we're in 2023 now, and I'm sure they'll be showing it on their FA Cup showreel. And <laughs> next season, the, the third round, they'll be showing it on that show. It's just one of those ones that, that's immortalised into people's psyche because of the nature of it. And I think it's also... It's worth probably noting um, the late, great John Watson was dispatched to that game, I think, for his first assignment with the BBC on a trial to become a commentator. And the game itself wasn't intended to be the showcase game on BBC's Match of the Day coverage. It was way down the order because the the assumption was that Newcastle were going to beat the non-leaguers and go into the fourth round. And it was going to be just a, a few moments just to kind of highlight that. But of course, history doesn't work that way. And because of the nature of the result, it, I think it became the top of the bill for match of the day. And John Motson, I mean, he, he couldn't have been in the right place at the right time because it really was the the game that kick-started the great career. And we've all been fortunate enough to benefit from his pose of wisdom and sometimes his uh, incredible um, bluffs of wisdom as well. Extraordinarily. We came really, really close to that game being super significant for not just one legendary BBC football commentator or presenter, but almost two. So the guy who played in goal for Hereford in the first 11 games of that season is David Icke. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's that's the world. It is. It is. David Ike plays the first 11 goals. Only concedes nine goals in the first 11 games. Quite unlucky <laughs> to lose his place. I, I, I have to, I can't, I have to point you to the most, uh, there's, a, there's a really lovely article that I read uh, where a guy goes back to interview David Ike uh, about 
about his memories of this period of that game. Yeah, David Ike, he'd gone to the, uh, he was in the away end for the um, for the first Newcastle game. And uh, David Ike speaks really, what's great about it is this really lengthy, really detailed talking about David Ike's career at Hereford and talking about nothing else that happened in David Ike's life, <laughs> <laughs> which I kind of love. I sort of love, I sort of love that, well, we won't talk about the whole lizard thing. We'll just let that go. But um, but for a quirk of fate, or if that game had happened a fraction later, the, you know, that Hereford side would have been managed by John Charles and would have had David Icke in goal. Um, as it was, that Ronnie Radford goal, which is, it's still an unbelievable finish, but it's not the winning goal. So um, a chap called Ricky George gets the winner in uh, extra time. Not a bad finish either. After the pitch by then is it's just it's just all mud. Um, the, thing, the thing with the pitches back back then, though, I mean, even right through to the mid nineties, it was absolutely accepted as that was the pitch from yeah. effectively November through to March, late April. That was the pitch. There was, you know, everyone accepted that grass disappears and you won't see it again till pre-season from November. It's just bizarre. You, you, you can't imagine now if you go to the Premier League and see a spot of mud on the pitch. I mean, it's all kind of concealed by real real grass and plastic grass, which is absolutely in prime condition all year round. And, we, and we've all played on those sort of pitches as well on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, funnily enough, many, many times, many, many times. It's, it's hilarious. That, that goal, by the way, was goal of the season that uh, year. And um, the reason we've seen so much of it, I mean, it's, it's like you say, Jamie, it's on the uh, match of the day coverage. It was actually part of their opening title for many, many seasons. Just an amazing goal. The thing I love about this is... Um, if you look at Newcastle's team, they had the likes of Viz Bus- Vib Busby, Frank Clark, and Malcolm McDonald. And we all remember Malcolm McDonald, don't we? As quite a sort of, you know, relatively outspoken centre forward who, um, he, he liked to brag, didn't he? And I think before this, in the replay, sorry, not before the first, after the first game, he talked about scoring 10 in the, <laughs> um, in the return leg, in the replay. So it's nice to see Malcolm McDonald come down to earth with a bang. Actually, their cup runs semi continues. They go and play West Ham, and they get a creditable draw at Egg Street. Fifteen thousand fans crammed in there. Uh, all of them were wearing Parkers, I assume, as well. Um, <laughs> they then, they then, uh, their cup run comes to an end. Uh, they lose the replay three one against uh, West Ham. By which time, having got to only the fourth round, but they have played ten games. Ten games in that cup run. And so then, you know, the legacy doesn't quite finish there, does it, Jamie? Well, no, it really doesn't because this, this is, it seems strange now. Since 1986, <laughs> we've accepted that non, non-league teams with promotion have the right to go into the Football League. And the team that finishes in the bottom of the Football League, the fourth division, as it was in 1986, two as it is now, go into non-league football. And that's been established for a long period of time. And it means the pyramid is doing exactly what it's designed to do. But until 1986, it wasn't like that. You had to, as a non-league team, you had to apply. And it and it was down to the individual club where they wanted to apply for football league status or not. So you didn't even have to win your respective division 
to apply to get into the league. And Hereford didn't. Hereford came second in the Southern League. They lost out to Chelmsford by Chelsea City by two points. Chelsea City, for whatever reason, hadn't applied. And maybe because they thought it was a waste of time. Because if you look at the historical elections from around about the, the 1950s, right through to 1986, when it was abolished, league teams were secure. It was very rare that a league team would get voted out for a non-league. It was Over that 20, of the 28 years, well, it was Division 4, this is before Division 3, South and North 4, but the 28 years when it was uh, Division 4, only five teams. Uh, when the league table for James Alexander-Gordon would always... I, I never really understood why this was happening. You've got they go through the, the league tables, and Port Vale would have to apply for re-election. So all those teams that finish in the bottom four would apply for re-election, and across you know. And so you're looking at uh, twenty-eight times four. If I could do the maths quickly, which I probably can't, but the you know that's <laughs> that's you know well over a hundred hundred plus teams, where only five times the teams weren't re-elected. There was one other team, Accrington, um, left the league for different reasons. They were um, <laughs> they were replaced by um, a, a highly impressive team who went on to dominate uh, Thames Valley football um, and become icons there. So uh, we uh, Oxford successfully got in during that period, but not that, but not through the um, application process. So it was really, really strange. And as you say, you have a weird situation where. Hereford don't finish top of their league, and Barrow didn't finish bottom of the, of the fourth division. They replaced, yeah. So, yeah, um, they finished third bottom. So, th- there's lots of there's lots of reasons why that shouldn't ever happened. Yet did, and you know, let's let's just think about what the Super League would look like. The European Super League would look like. This is where you're going. You know, those clubs that don't make it. If Newcastle hadn't made it into that initial thing, they would have been the ones knocking on the door asking for. Uh, to get in, and then you've got Real Madrid finishing bottom. Shall we? Uh, and then they decide amongst, amongst themselves who's going to make it. That was the kind of closed shop era you were working with, only <laughs> only with much less glamorous. What is quite interesting, and I don't know if you uh, came across this, Jeremy, but that one of the things that did happen as part of this application, reapplication thing, was that the teams that left the league were the most northern and the, and there was a, a southernization of the league so um the teams so not only did barrow leave but gateshead southport workington uh, a place um Jamie weirdly familiar with and um bradford park <laughs> avenue so all all five of those left um now wigan you know which is pretty north got in but the others you know so you had wimbledon you had cambridge you had peterborough and uh, and you had hereford that appeared to be that the only agenda that clubs did have in mind was probably some teams from the south or from london wanting to cut down on their their traveling costs to the most northern northerly points in um, in england i think again you're talking about finances and i think you're absolutely nailed it and it's incredible that the, those five teams that you talked about that are from wigan aside from the south of um england replaced <laughs> five teams way up north but what's incredible i i'm absolutely convinced that Ronnie Radford's equaliser against Newcastle in this FA Cup third round replay 
has influenced the votes for that season. Mm. I think without that, Hereford probably don't get league status. I absolutely am open to be standard to be corrected on from my listeners on that. I really would encourage it to tell me I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to that, but I'm convinced that goal was in people's minds when they were voting. To kind of contrast that, there were there were 12 non-league teams that were pitched against the four league teams, so 16 teams. Three of the league teams were way ahead in terms of votes. And Hereford and Barrow, as you mentioned, were tied on 28 votes. Of the 12 non-league teams that got the 28 votes, 26 of them went to Hereford. So, I mean, (laughs) it was absolutely stacked in their favour. And then Hereford went against Barrow in a one-off and won out by nine votes. And yeah, incredibly Barrow, who weren't bottom, not even second from bottom in the Football League, were replaced by Hereford, who weren't even champions in their respective Southern League. Incredible that such a thing took took place. And you're right. I mean, people do complain about, you know, the idea that a Super League is kind of, you know, people protecting their own self-interest, but that's exactly what was going on with the Football League here. (laughs) And of course, what comes around goes around. And here we are in 2023 in Hereford, the League and Barrow are riding high. So, you know, nothing lasts forever. So I'm gonna, we, we really are making our making our enemies of Hereford United fans here, aren't we? I mean, like, well, we're going to get a backlash, and I, here, I think here's, it's here's, here's where I'm gonna gonna bring it bring it round because when it comes to how we rank them, I think the legacy, and I think what they are is just ex- it has an outsized effect on what they are you know i know it's only one cup run and one one moment in the game that is football greatness i mean it is the impact of the goal the circumstances of the goal the legacy you know what it meant for motson's career what it meant for hereford what it what it's meant that you know 50 years on people still talk about that goal that for me is a touch of greatness and i'm gonna fight my corner on this what do you reckon jamie <laughs> yeah, I kind of like the idea you're going to fight your corner on that one. <laughs> um, I, I I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. I think you know it's a it's a wonderful story. We all love giant killers in the FA Cup. It's what makes the FA Cup incredibly special, and it still does. Um, people may say it's 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 lost its flavour over time, but it still tastes great to me. And I love the FA Cup, and I love what it can produce. Ronnie Rafford's goal is, is is fantastic. The fact that you mentioned that they've in their run when they got knocked out by West Ham after their their replay West Ham, they played ten games. I haven't checked this, but I'm pretty sure that's more than Leeds United played in winning the whole thing, which is incredible. Um, <laughs> and, and the fact that they've they've been elected to the league, albeit fire, I think some very dodgy dodgy system that I can't back up at all and I'm probably on very dodgy ground by saying such things but it was a long time ago and you can really rack I don't remember what I did last week um I, I don't think these this Hereford United team is any bigger than blinkered greats and I think touch of greatness is just absolutely bonkers <laughs> Scotty, Scotty, you're going to come to my rescue. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. You're coming to me again for the final vote. Can you give me the first vote next time? (laughs) I didn't expect... I thought it would be plain sailing. I thought thought it was going to be between touch greatness and true greats. Well, I think, Jamie, you put them in what blinkered greats, and where are you, Graham? A touch of greatness. (laughs) Yeah, I thought thought if if, if it was worth going for, it was worth going for large. Well, I think there's some great things about this story. And like you say, Jamie, you know, we all love a great giant killing. And this is one of the biggest giant killings, even to today. One that, you know, the footage never, we never tire of seeing that goal. 
it's got the whole John Watson story to it, Graham, which you pointed out. And I, you know, I think this is this has got some legs. I'd probably go a little bit higher than you, Jamie, and a little bit lower than you, Graham. I think uh, I love the fact that Malcolm McDonald, you know, was sh- shut up quite royally. This must have. I mean, we talk about getting promoted and reasons for getting promoted, but the fact that they had so many games and so many games against big clubs like Newcastle and West Ham probably didn't do their finances any harm. That may also have contributed to the <laughs> fact that they got Football League status because they true. were probably in a better state to, to be able to achieve it than some of the other non-league clubs like at the 15, time. 15,000, 15,000 at those two games. I mean, that is Brilliant. quite impressive, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, agreed. It, it is. It's incredible, really. So for me, touch of greatness is a bit too much. Uh, oh, sorry, edge of greatness is a bit too much. I think it deserves to be a little bit out of blinkered greatness. So I'm going in the middle of you two. We're not going to agree on this one. I'm going for a touch of greatness. And we're going to have to put the hammer <laughs> no, down. That's on. agreeing with, that's agreeing with Graham. Edge of greatness no, is the middle. Uh, no. greatness is, touch of greatness is higher than edge of greatness. I, I think I'm going to think oh, okay. oh, well, get... is confusing. Forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> How can you get Forgive our ranking me. system wrong? It's so easy to follow. <laughs> I know, I know. Forgive me. I, I only come on this, you know, when you've, you've fought, you know, fed up with other people. So, <laughs> sorry then. I am agreeing with Graham. There you go, Jamie. It uh, it goes, wow. it's, it's lower than an edge of greatness. It's a touch of greatness. And uh, happy days. I'm loving it. I I'm loving it. I accept it. Hereford, a touch of greatness. Get in. So we have one last bit of business. One last bit of business. We bring out the old John DeLorean. <laughs> John DeLorean, the, um, bring out the um, uh, the time definitely machine. DeLorean. I don't know if it's yes, John no, DeLorean. John DeLorean came DeLorean. from. Oh, no, he, 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 he's the guy who tried to rebuild it. So, yeah. so we bring out the DeLorean and we get the time machine. Scott, let's go to you first. Where do you want to go back to? Oh, there's a couple of places I could go here, really. I think... Going to Colombia to see a Faraday de Stefano play football <laughs> would be absolutely incredible. I mean, we're talking about one of the biggest legends of the game. I've got no interest in uh, Club Millionarios, I'll be honest, Millionarios. I've got no interest in seeing them, but I'd love to see a Faraday de Stefano. So that would be my first choice. My second choice... If I, if I can, as your guest, take two choices, you'll have mm. to forgive me. It's going to see Hamburg, but not during their great season of 77-78 or any any of the games that they actually won. It would be to see them get stuffed 6-0 by Liverpool in the Super Cup, <laughs> uh, second leg. But, uh, but maybe to Anfield to see Keegan. Oh, I'd love to see Keegan as well. I'd love to see him in a red shirt, not a Hamburg shirt. And mm. I was too young for that. So I'll stick with Columbia and seeing Stefano, please. Jamie, where are you going? I think we probably need to ignore the floor that Scott's raised in our time machine that we could go back and watch all three if we wanted to. But that kind of <laughs> defeats the object of what we're trying to do. So let's, let's just pretend that never happened. And, you know, you've only got one MP and only just they, one journey. The, the DeLorean um, is famously unreliable. You can only set it once. Scott does make a very good point, but let's, let's not spoil the way we end these things uh, by being too logical. I love coffee. I love Rebels. I think going to Colombia and watching Milaneros and for what Scott's reasons, um, seeing Alfredo de Stefano at 23, 24, 25 in his prime, this, this incredible goal scorer um, who's developing into an incredible forward, not just a striker, but, you know, that kind of 
you know, wonderful number nine, number 10 that we see today. Yeah, for the coffee, for the rebel, for Alfredo Di Stefano, I'm going to watch some pirate Super League football. That does sound appealing. It won't surprise you to learn that the lure of that moment, the muddy pitch, the Parkers, I am most definitely taking the John Sims Life on Mars option of going back to the 1970s to Edgar Park. Imagine being one of the people streaming on after Ronnie Rabbit hits that. In your Parker. In my Parker. (laughs) In your Parker. Okay, we should wrap it up there. Scott, thanks for being on today and bearing uh, bearing up through your cold. Uh, Thank you very much. Hopefully you haven't sniffled too much. (laughs) Jamie, good to have you on board as ever. It's a great pleasure. I love it. So that's it for this week. As ever, please get in touch with any comments, additions, corrections about any of the teams you talked about today. Uh, And we'd love to hear any suggestions of other great teams we should cover. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you again next time.